Welcome to the Dine One Six, a food podcast about Sacramento. I'm your host, Max Connor. This is episode eight, and the seventh person I'm talking to, if you're counting. And what I love about doing this show is just getting to connect with people and hear their stories. We all have great stories to tell, even if we don't think we do. And I already knew that, and it's what I love about podcasts in general, but it really becomes clear when you get to talk to people and listen back to their stories. I'm excited about every episode, and today is no different. My guest today is Ray Ballestero. Ray is the co-owner of Alaro Craft Brewery in Midtown Sacramento, along with his wife, Annette. And as you'll hear, Ray does not have a conventional path to restaurant ownership. He was just a guy who loved to brew beer at home long before that was a trendy thing to do. But he spent his days working in intensive care units and then a nutritional medicine practice. It took decades of home brewing, a chance meeting and love connection with Annette, who just happened to be the former co-owner of River City Brewing Company. More than a decade of running a fair trade retail business, natural disasters, an epic 50th birthday party, and an iconic brewery location closing its doors before Ray would step into the world of restaurant and brewery ownership. So if you love great beer and great food, or just one or the other, and you love a great story, this is an episode for you. And before I give away the whole story, let's jump into my talk with co-owner of Alaro Craft Brewery, Ray Ballestero. Ray, it's really great to have you here on the Dine One Six. Yeah, well, thank you, Max, for having me. Yeah. So I always like to ask people, really, the first question I almost always ask is just, what role did food play in your life growing up? You know, I was fortunate to live on a street where the majority of my family also lived. So my, you know, aunts, uncles, my grandmother, grandfather all lived almost essentially on the same street. So we're all very close. So growing up with my cousins and, you know, nieces and nephews and uncles and grandparents there, food was always associated with gathering. I mean, mm. every birthday, every holiday, you know, we, we would normally gather at my grandparents' house and, you know, and food is culture and yeah. food was food celebration. So growing up in a, in a Spanish family with food all around, it was, uh, it's a great memory as a child. Who was the main, the main cook, the main chef in the you know, family? I think everybody played a role. I mean, cause you know, the, the grandparents were the, you know, the matriarch and patriarch. So things were done there and that was always very special. But my mom was a wonderful cook. My aunt was a great cook. So it didn't matter which house he went to. There was, it was always pretty food forward. Okay, yeah. cool. Where yeah. did you grow up? In Southern California, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, Sun Valley, so like LA area. Yeah. How many different houses of families were there on that street? We had, we had. I mean, it, in my personal family, we had four different, four different families wow. living on that street. So, That's cool. <laughs> pretty, pretty lucky. You know, something that you don't see anymore, and something I really miss. I mean, because you know, families now are scattered all over the place. Yeah, yeah. So. That's cool. My <clears throat> wife's family, the her mom, the generation older than them. That's how there was. They had the grandparents lived on the top of the hill in Idaho. And back in the day, her grandpa had bought this whole plot of land that he developed. So it was like each, then each of his daughters had a house on the property. And it was definitely like the Stoddard compound for a little bit. And then eventually people splintered off. But sure. yeah. I, That's ideal. I, it should be nice to uh, get back to that. It is. It's yeah. pretty great. Yeah. We, we, I mean, we'd visit there every summer when her grandparents were alive and, and the whole family would get together and just hang out there all day. So fun, that's really fun. neat. I know before you got into the food world, you have a health and science background and actually worked in nutritional medicine, right? So tell me a little bit yeah, about getting yeah. into that field. Yeah, and I still do. So I went into the military once I got out of high school and uh, thought I was going to work in the fire department area, but I wound up 
not get into the fire department because of a color distinction in my eyes. Mm. And uh, so they told me that I didn't qualify for that. So I thought, oh, I'm smart enough. I'm going to find my way into the fire department the back way and okay. I'll become a paramedic and go in that direction. Yeah. And then once I wound up working in medicine, so I became a paramedic and then went into, you know, critical care work. And I just, I found medicine pretty fascinating. And, and so I stuck with it and that's what I've done. You know, that's been my, you know, my professional adult career since. So once I got out of the military, worked in a few, you know, ICUs throughout Sacramento, and then met a, a gentleman who had a nutritional medical practice, kind of an integrated medical practice, so a little on both sides of the fence. So we do a little Western medicine, a little nutritional medicine, and, and uh, I really resonated with that because mm. it was pretty health-oriented, and I've been working for that practice for 30 years, 30-plus 30 years. I'm still there now. Wow. Mm -hmm. Wow. So what do you do for them now? So I'm an infusionist. I do intravenous therapy. So I mix up solutions and I put them into people. So we work with a lot of age-related disease processes like diabetes and heart disease and the types of things that, you know, lifestyle can make a big difference. Yeah. So it's it's pretty fun and it's and it's nice. It's completely different than the than the restaurant industry. I mean, it's still service-based, but you know, my focus there is really on the one patient that's in front of me at any given time. So I'm not thinking about payroll. I'm not thinking about all the, the you know aspects of running a business. You know, it's just one person and. And it's a, it's kind of a life of service, and it, it grounds me. Wow, that's cool. So it's a little bit of an escape almost. Too it really is. To so to yes, that. That's why I still do it a couple of days a week. Yeah. As much as I could use the time to run my business, I love it. So That's cool. Yeah. So then how did you first get introduced to the food and hospitality world? You know, food and hospitality came later. I, I never really had the thought of, you know, opening up my own restaurant, but I was immersed in in brewing as a young adult, and I love beer. I was fascinated with beer, fascinated with brewing. I mean, the science of brewing and beer kind of kind of went together, you know. And so you always had those pipe dreams of, oh, I'm going to own my own brewery someday. Mm -hmm. um, but then I watched friends do it, and I thought, nah, I don't. Maybe I'll take the fun <laughs> out of it. But you know, once I met my wife, she was her family was involved in the restaurant industry for many years, and uh, she was fascinated with my beer brewing, and, and she was one of the original owners of River City. Okay. So you know, we had always talked about. If we ever did it, we'd want to open up something that was full scale, not just a brewery, but a brewery with a pretty elevated restaurant. Yeah. So when did you first get into brewing then? Where did, did you start home brewing before yeah, that was really yeah, a thing? Yeah, I did. Or? I started home brewing before a lot of people were home brewing. Um, I actually had a very good friend who was older than I was by several years. And just before I went to the military, he was working for kind of an import store that imported you know, beers and spirits. And so it was even before I was really 21, honestly, okay. but he would, he would come home with like a six pack every weekend and set them down and, you know, like two beers a piece and uh, two of like three beers. And there were always these really unique beers. So mm. I really never started off as a young adult drinking American craft lagers. I was drinking some really fun imports, you know, you yeah. know Gannis and Bass and you know, not that they're super exciting now, but like Pilsner or Quell, <clears throat> those were the beers that I was exposed to. And so it always it, it kind of jump started me like wow there's so much to this beer world that most people aren't even seeing, and then on my 21st birthday, he bought me this cheap little homebrew kit, and uh, <laughs> you know we made beer with it. I had just gone into the military, so I had a little apartment, and you know I had this homebrew kit. And we did it on stovetop, and you know convinced ourselves it was drinkable. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, but then I, I realized pretty quickly I said that I could do this better. Yeah. And so there wasn't a lot of homebrewing literature back there, and there was one one book that was pretty well known, Charlie Papazian's book. And then uh, then I went down to the university and I started pulling you know brewing manuals, professional brewing manuals, and kind of created my own homebrew system and started working with equipment. And then eventually landed in Sacramento where there was 
kind of a grassroots organization. Um, it was a, a homebrewers club. And it was, it was a fascinating club, and it was pretty well attended. And we started communicating with different professionals in the, in the industry, you know, kind of advanced my, my homebrewing. Yeah. What year was that? When was that? Was that back in like the 80s? <clears throat> yeah. So I think 87 okay. was when I first started, and then it just kind of progressed there. I would say the early 90s, I was, it was really ramping for me. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. So then let's move forward to Alaro. So where did the idea for Alaro start? You mentioned you never, you weren't really sure if you ever really wanted to get into a restaurant. And, or actually, tell me a little bit about, before we jump into that, tell me a little bit about meeting Annette. And she obviously had a background in, in brewing beer. And she said at the time that your, whatever you were brewing there, whether it was at home, or I don't know if you were had stepped into helping brew for any restaurants at the time, but how did it ramp up to meeting Annette and her saying, well, the beer you you make is pretty good. Maybe we should do something. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, I met her actually as, as a patient. She, uh, she oh, wow. yeah, she, so I met her through the office and, you know, we hit it off and started spending time together and, and, you know, she was defines that term foodie. I mean, when we went out, okay. it, she would always be researching the, you know, the top restaurants, the Michelin <laughs> chefs, no matter where we went or those little nuggets. And, and it, it was fascinating for me to, to be able to go out to places like that and immerse myself in food culture. But she fell in love with my beer and she said that she, you know, gained a fondness for beer with River City. Mm-hmm. She was on the food aspect of it. Okay. Her brother was more on the beer side and then they had a professional brewer who was fantastic. So she had known beer but then when she started drinking my beer, she's like, oh, my God, I've, I've never had beer quite this good. She goes, it's, you know, you really have a knack for it. We should do something with this. So kind of advanced from there. She had, you know, had River City, since sold it, and then we were, had a fair trade business and we're living in, in Sonoma County. The fires happened in Sonoma County, mm. and so it really hurt our retail business quite a bit. And we weren't sure exactly what we were going to do. We wanted to maintain that business. But then I was contacted by the previous owner of, of Rubicon. He said that he was selling the business, and so we had talked about it and thought, you know, this might be our opportunity to, to move back to Sacramento and kind of save this iconic location and, and do the program that we always wanted to do. And so that was the inspiration for it, and then, uh, you know, weren't sure if that was really going to work, but it, it was a process. It took us a while for that transition to happen, but, yeah. but we made it happen. What were you just brewing beer still at home at that time when she was trying I, what you I, were I doing? I was, or? but I mean, a pretty active brewer. I mean, we, yeah. you know, a lot of home brewers, you know, brew once in a while, a couple of times a year, more of a novelty, you know, but I, I brewed essentially almost all the beer that I would consume and, and, and many of my friends, as a matter of fact, for my, my 50th birthday, that was right before we started. I, I brewed like 12 different beers. I kind of wow. went for my own beer fast. We, <laughs> we... We rented a, a winery uh, up in you know Sonoma County mm-hmm. and and set it up and it was just it was beautiful. So we had beer stations all over, you know, and then the food and, and that whole thing. And it was kind of funny because it was my fiftieth and people are that all came. We had like I think close to three hundred people wow. for that event and and they're like, oh my god, why don't you do this professionally? And and it was just shortly after that we did. Yeah, were you guys in the negotiation periods of starting Alara at that point or it was, was that a... it was just right before it okay yeah, yeah so that was sort of one more little yep. little note from the universe to say like maybe yep. maybe you should maybe step should into this, this world yep yep okay and you mentioned you know what did it mean to take over Rubicon and to sort of save how long was Rubicon there was that one of the first it, breweries it was, in yeah, Sacramento it was really one of the first craft breweries in Sacramento you know one of the you know one of the probably the top five in the in the country really or in California certainly it was it almost made thirty years before mm. they before they closed, <clears throat> but it's a you know it's an iconic location. It's its proximity to UC Davis was very important in that you know in that brewing world because yeah. you know the the brewing program was there, and then a lot of the 
who is now professional brewers, have kind of gone through the Rubicon. It was close. So between Studeworks and Rubicon, I mean, those were the two breweries that was associated with UC Davis a lot. And yeah. so Dr. Michael Lewis designed that brew house, and there was only two in existence, and it's the only one that's functioning. And so to have a, a historic brew house like that, we thought it's, it's really important to maintain this. And it would have been a lot cheaper and easier just to buy a new brew house and pop it in there. But oh, really? Yeah, it's kind of like restoring a classic car. Okay. You know, it's, it's kind of a labor of love. And, um, but it's, it's cool that it's still there, and it's still in that original location. And so I, it was, you know, it's big shoes to fill, filling in for a brewery that had been there for 30-plus years and all the history it had. It was important to us to maintain that location. It was important to us to maintain, you know, the, the energy there. But, but yet, we still wanted to brand it on our own and, you know, upgrade and be the brew pub that the kind of place that we've always wanted to go. Because yeah. My wife would often drag me out of, you know, some really great beer establishments because she wanted, you know, <laughs> real food or, right. or a great glass of wine. So we decided if we ever opened a place, we would, there's no reason you can't have great food and a great culinary program, a great service associated with beer. Yeah. So. All right. So let's talk a little bit about that. What was, so for anyone who's listening who hasn't been to Alaro, it's sort of Spanish Spanish-inspired kind sure. of California cuisine, right? Mm-hmm. And Correct. what was your thought behind that? What was the conversation between you and Annette when you started to lay out the food program and look for chefs and, and decide to use that Spanish influence from your background, from growing up with four families on one street cooking Spanish food? <laughs> right, right. Um, how did that process go? It was a process. You know, it's it, you know trying to decide what food program pairs perfectly with beer, like what's going to match beer, what's going to be an elevated food program but not be too bougie. Mm-hmm. Um, and then how can we bring our culture into it? Because, you know, I think the Spanish tapas, it's like the original small plate. You know, I think small plates were designed as for gathering, for socializing, right. for culture. And we thought the small plate format could work really, really well here because it could give you lots of different flavors. And that could work really well with beer. And then as we started playing with it, you know, we hired our executive chef at that time was Jason Azevedo, also has a lot of Iberian Peninsula influence. And so bringing him on the team, was great. And so we kind of talked about what we wanted. He talked to us about what his thoughts were. And then friends and advisors, you know, we'd sit down and we'd cook many meals at home and at friends' houses as a team. You know, he would be there and Jason and and, and then the rest of our team, I had brewer Chris Keaton. And then our, at the time, our sous chef, David Santana, who is now our executive chef, we'd gather with friends and we would cook lots of meals and, you know, trial and error, seeing what worked and didn't work, seeing how it paired with beer. And it worked really well because I think the the spicy, smoky, salty aspects of a mm-hmm. lot of a lot of Spanish foods, it begs you to have another beer with sure. us. Sure, yeah. So that sounds like a pretty good time to be a friend of the Ballesteros. <laughs> it really was. Dinner and give beer flights. Yeah, it was. It was fun. Let these yeah. world class chefs just cook cook things up to try. Right. That, that sounds pretty amazing. So. You've traveled the world, you've judged brewing competitions, you've been a serious home brewer and now professional brewer for a long time. What advice do you have to someone who wants to get into home brewing, is interested in, you know, becoming a brewer? I think the best thing they could do would be to join a homebrew club because mm. it's, you know, you're putting a bunch of people together. There's a lot more information now on homebrewing than there ever was when I started. I mean, you could just Google homebrew systems and you could buy a system that would parallel a, a professional brewing system just on small scale. And you can spend as, as little or as much money as you want in doing that. But having the knowledge on what to do with it, I mean, there's some crucial key points that if you followed... I mean, you could make drinkable beer mm. pretty early. And I think a lot of people have homebrewed and 
they'll hide some of their flaws by putting a lot of fruit or flavor additives into their beer. But you know, I think they skip that whole base of refining their process and their technique and making a, a really, really drinkable Pilsner at a start. And if you could do that, I think you could really advance. And so I think homebrew clubs can really help you go through a lot of processes quickly that you, that trial and error you'd have to do at home could take years, whereas a homebrew club could skip you through that pretty quickly. Yeah. Ray went on to suggest that when you get started brewing at home, pick one style of beer that you really enjoy and brew it over and over until you get it where you want it. He said it's tempting to try all sorts of different styles and to cover flaws with lots of flavor additives like fruit, but that the best way to learn is to brew a classic style many times to figure out the nuances and technique that really make a difference each time you brew. That's what he said they aim to achieve at Alaro. Ray joked that Alaro brews beer-flavored beer, and they aim to do it so it's classic and refined. So if you order their Czech-style Pilsner or their Mexican lager or their classic IPA, you know what to expect. But long before Alaro, Ray and Annette, who are clearly people who follow their passions, owned an entirely different business. You mentioned you and Annette owned a fair trade business in Sonoma before Alaro, and I know fair trade is still an important component of what you all try to do with Alaro. And I think Annette still, do you guys still have a fair trade? We do. We, do. we have the well. online store. So we closed the brick and mortar store. We had that for about 14 years, worked with uh, artisans from about 52 different countries, artisans that are pretty marginalized. So very small areas, areas that don't have access to, to market, to sell their products. And it's a, you know, it's a social justice, human rights type business. Mm. So it was one of those businesses that made us feel really good about working with it and then having a retail store to sell their wares, especially somewhere like Sonoma County. You yeah. know, it's, it's, a, it's a popular area. So you're taking products that are handmade from artisans and you know, moving it from the old school hippie store with prayer flags and incense to a, a store that's shiny and sparkling that has working with designers that kind of maybe help some of the artisans with their designs so that they can keep with current trends and colors and those types of things. And it, and it worked really well for us. It was a really fun business. And it meant a lot to us. The, all of our staff that worked with us resonated to that kind of, that kind of business. And yeah. when we left that, didn't fully leave it, but we closed the brick and mortar, kept the online so we'd have some connection with our artisans. That worked out really well for us when we opened up Alara because we already had this connection with the artisans. So as we were trying to source all of our materials for the restaurant, we found that a lot of things were made in China. And I thought, you know, not that those products are necessarily bad, but there's really no way to validate those labor practices. Right. And we didn't want to really support anything that could potentially be like slave labor or child labor. So I thought, well, we already have this connection. Let's see how much we can source through the, the groups that we've already built relationships with. And it was pretty fun because we could. And it's like a lot of our plateware. Initially, we were, we were working with a group out of Tunisia that was doing all the flatware, all the, all the baked ware, all the enamelware. Mm. And so we brought that in. And, and it's beautiful, and it really fit our profile well because it's, it's colorful, it's, yeah. uh, it's beautiful, and it, and it worked. So we brought that in, and then we had a hard time sourcing particularly beer swag. You know, you want to have T-shirts and hats and keychains and all those types of things right. for customers because you want to brand yourself. But I didn't want to give in to that process again and so um, we worked with groups that we had already worked with before so it's you know it's organic fair trade certified cotton and uh, you know labor practices are validated or we use labor that's here in in California and so all of our t-shirts are fair trade certified so of our hats you know all of our apparel is as well 
and we love that. I mean, it's really nice clothing. It feels good, and it sends the right message for us. Yeah, that's cool. Mm -hmm. And tell us, tell people, for anyone who's listening, what exactly fair trade means, because I think that's one of those like buzzwords that people see on coffee or see otherwise. And sure. Think like, oh, this. Sure. I don't know. This must be good, or you know what I mean. Yeah, I think they, people and they don't, don't really know what really it know is. what it actually yeah, is. Yeah, I mean, right? we, we often hear people come in and say, "Oh, I love you know, I, <laughs> you know, I love fair trade," or not really knowing what it is. Right. right. It's like they say, "I love free trade." Like, yeah, free, free trade, fair trade, they're a little different. <laughs> yeah. You know, so we work through a, an organization. It's called the Fair Trade Federation. So it's it's a third party validation. So they just make sure that the supply chain is valid. So they kind of kind of looked at all aspects from producer to retailer. Is everyone following those these guidelines that are set up? And it's working conditions are, are safe. There's equality in the industry, in the working world, and that they're being paid a fair wage or a living wage in their in their area. Mm -hmm. And so those are kind of the three main ones. So tell us, we talked about the small plates and the Spanish-inspired food, but tell us a little bit more about the food specifically at Alaro. What are some of the some, some of, of the our, highlights? Some of our key dishes. I mean, the things that are are, are house specialties that are on all the time because they're it's not a season-oriented dish. Is one of them is our popogago. So that's our it's kind of a oil poached octopus. Which uh, is, yeah, I've had that there. It, I mean, it's an elegant dish. It's beautiful. It's it's fun. It does take someone that's a little bit food adventurous because they're like, ooh, octopus, you know, tentacles. It's you know, it's scary. <laughs> but that's that's the kind of fun thing about small places. It, it's great to gather with a group of your friends and sit down and order some things that might be outside your comfort zone. Yeah. Put them on the plate because it's not a large commitment. It's not like you're ordering an entree of one giant octopus for dinner. Right. You know, it's, it's something that's like, all right, I'll, I'll, I'll try one by. And then you try it and, and you surprise yourself like, wow, this is amazing. And But that, it goes through a, a two-week olive oil confit. So it's a labor of love. Wow. We're the only ones in Sacramento doing that. And certainly biased. I bounce around and try octopus everywhere I can. Sure. And, and I love ours. It's a... Uh, but again, it takes almost two weeks to get that process done. We have a big stainless steel container, and we fill it with olive oil. You know, the octopus has flown in from Spain, and uh, we clean it. We submerge it in the olive oil. We take lemons and half them and put them in there, you know, some marjoram, you know, a little bit of shallot, and put it in there, and then it's that low and slow theory. We bake it at 200 degrees for like six hours, pull it out of the oven, let it cool, rest. Uh, once it hits room temperature, we cover it with parchment and kind of push out all the air, leaving it in that oil bath. And then it goes back into the walk-in for, mm. for several days. And we test it for consistency until it's ready. So it's kind of that poaching process. And then once it's ready, we bring it out on the line and get a blistering hot pan. And it hits that, and we get a nice pan sear. So you get that little bit of char on it. You serve it with a mojo crew, which is like a you know Spanish raw sauce, which is, you know, preserved tomatoes and garlic and all those great flavors yeah. know, chopped up very fine. And then with some fingling potatoes, it's it's a beautiful dish. So, I mean, that's one of our flagships, our hogs and rocks, also Iberian Peninsula. So braised pork cheeks, manila clams, you know, and a really savory paprika-based sauce, like three different types of paprika, kind of smoky, kind of salty, you know, the type of sausage you want to dip up all with the bread. Right. You know, it goes great with <laughs> beer as well. And then, uh, then our gambas. So pretty traditional Spanish garlic shrimp. But it's the head-on, you know, the head-on yeah. spot prawns. We score it so it's an easy peel. But without the heads on there, without the shell on there, you just do not get that flavor. You know, mm. we tried it without it, trying to make it a little more pedestrian food, you know, a little more friendly to some people. Sure. But the flavor is not there. So, we, you know, we cook it completely, and it's just a fantastic, elegant dish. Yeah, that's I think I've tried all three of those. Yeah, they've been, they've been on the yeah. menu since the beginning, and they, they always will be. The rest of the menu changes seasonally, you know, all the rest of our tapas, but those are our... That's yeah. our core. They're all, they're all phenomenal, too. They're Thank really you. good. Thank you. So tell me a little bit about running a business with your wife. 
because I ran a business with my sister for 10 years. Um, yeah, I saw that. Which, yeah. was, which was great. But I think what was interesting for me to learn is people say, you know, never go into business with your family. And I think my thinking around that was different before I got into business with my sister, which was, you know, realizing that when business gets in the way, you know, we were sort of stuck with if you have just a business partner, right, you can make real considerations if things are, are ugly about parting ways. But when it's someone in your family, that's what you want to avoid Correct. happening, right? So tell me a little bit about running a business with your wife and how you guys split up duties and how much fun it is or struggle it is <laughs> at times, that sort of thing. No, I, I love it. I mean, I, I love being with my wife. She loves being with me. We spend, we spend a lot of time together. So it, it's really a gift to be able to go to work together right and, and do things together and, and we play different roles there she really she really does run front of house mm. and and that's something i i don't want to do at all i mean i love the idea of having the brewery i love the idea of having a restaurant associated with the brewery i don't really want to run a restaurant got it um i love being on the floor i love our customers but you know day-to-day scheduling of staff and the training of the servers because we have lots of points of service that we want to achieve mm-hmm. that my wife shines at um she's she's great at it she loves it so I, I couldn't run that business without her. Yeah. And then on the brewery part of it, she doesn't really want to be back in the brewery at all. She loves the beer aspect of it, but that's, you know, that technical aspect she doesn't, doesn't want to get involved in. And so that's perfect. It gives us each our own area. And then we work at home together. So we have our, our office and, you know, we have our desks side by side and we pass things back and forth and all the admins handle between the two of us. And, you know, we pick and choose. Not, not that we love the admin part of it as much, but if there are certain things that I just really don't like, I said, hey, how about you? And can you take this? And she's like, let me, let me, ha- let me handle that for you. And then, you know, and vice versa. It's certain things. She's like, this is, this is your wheelhouse. You take this one. Yeah. So it's worked out really well. That's great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's been one of the good things about the pandemic for me is my, my wife's she works for public health and her job switched to being at home. And I, I love the fact that we're both home all the time. It's awesome to, to work in the same room together when we're both working from home. So that's great. And that kind of transitions us into working and running a restaurant in a pandemic. I know you guys had the, the space in back and were able to open a pretty good sized patio, but talk a little bit about the challenges of staying open and surviving to this point which alone is a congratulations right to Thank still you. have the yeah. still have the doors open at alaro at this point a lot of places didn't make it but talk a little bit about working through the pandemic and and what you guys did to survive it was a challenge i mean I, it was a challenge for everybody and uh you know we weren't sure we we're going to make it so it was it was terrifying for a while we you know we started in middle of 2018 so we really had like a full year of being the new business and so i don't know what normal business was like because you know you're new and you generate some hype because of that and then it wasn't long after that that the pandemic hit you know we just we felt like we started ramping that hit and it changed everything you know we went from 40 employees down to four when the pandemic first Mm -hmm. hit just my wife and i and my chef our chef um santana and then chris our head brewer and it was the four of us trying to do everything and it was on one level it's uh it's certainly team building i mean it was like a family it's like here's the four of us doing everything but it was it was kind of depressing too you know yeah. being, a, being in a big building like that and seeing just the four of us trying to do everything was it was tough and emotional but then we slowly started to build a takeout program and we weren't very takeout forward you know we, we really designed the restaurant to be that gathering place to sit down and be served right and we worked really hard on that service aspect so all of a sudden having that taken away from us we're like what do we do now and even with our beer side of it 
we weren't package heavy. You know, we, right. we really designed that brewery to sell beer across our own taps. And, yeah. and that was our goal. We didn't have a goal of being in every grocery store or restaurant. You know, we wanted to just be there and hit the local community. So all of a sudden we had to transition pretty quickly. And so we, we started bottling and, and trying to get some beer out, but, but it was hard. But we just worked hard at it. You know, we'd set up our event tent out in front of the, the restaurant every mm-hmm. morning, and we'd set up displays every day for our takeout. And we started trying to come up with great ideas like packaged family meals for take-homes, so like take-and-bake type meals. Um, we partnered with Produce Express, one of our vendors. So all of a sudden, you know, our walk-in went from absolutely packed to empty. Yeah. And we thought, well, we have space, and people need produce. and. Produce Express, you know, they lost a lot of their accounts. You know, where are they taking things to right. now? So we decided to become kind of an outlet for them and so for customers to pick up their produce boxes. And it wasn't a, a financial thing for us. There was no charge for it, but it just I thought it was a great community event and a community opportunity and, and maybe help people to find us that might not know of us otherwise. And so every every morning we would line up produce boxes all the way down that large community <laughs> table that we had with the names on them. We'd organize and people would come in and, you know, we'd say, hey, you want to get a little four pack on your way out, you know, to go with your produce box? And and they would. And then others would start taking to-go meals with it. So mm. it became that one-stop place for people to get their produce and their beer and, you know, and some take-home food. And, and so that helped us a little bit. And then as it slowly opened back up, to outside dining, it was really helpful that you had mentioned the back patio. We started working prior to COVID on that back patio because we kind of wanted to have like a like a beer gardens area. Yeah. So we had poured concrete and put in new drains and put up fencing, and we had just got it done before COVID hit. So all of a sudden, that became not our beer gardens; it became our dining room. Right. And uh, and so that really helped us survive that without having to build temporary structures on on the the street street. and so it became kind of a nice area and and it it resonated so so now it's a thing you know now we now we got to keep it right now it's a that's still an outdoor dining room yeah it is it is and it's great it worked out well for us so i think that really helped us and then certainly the community helped us it's you know we had people coming in purchasing takeout food when i know they didn't really need takeout food you know they would they would stop by we would We'd have customers walk in and just leave a $20 bill or a $50 bill or a $100 bill on the counter and walk mm-hmm. out. So, I mean, a lot of times it brought us to tears, the kind of community support we had. But it did. We were happy to be in Midtown Sacramento. Yeah. You know, I thought this is it's a great community to be in because they're extremely, extremely supportive and they really wanted to see the restaurant survive. Lots of gift cards being purchased. And so, I mean, we made it by the skin of our teeth. It wasn't easy and it wasn't without great loss. And and we lost a lot of really great employees. Yeah. Some of our key employees, you know, moved out of state because there was a lot of uncertainty in the hospitality industry. Like, is the restaurant industry going to come back and how long right. is it going to take? And can I pay rent in the meantime? So moving back home with parents or moving places where you had resources seemed like the safe bet at the time. So, and then we went up and down because, you know, all of a sudden we built the team back up and then we had that second wave where yeah. <clears throat> they closed again. And yeah. Like, we didn't see that coming and uh, that, that really hurt again. So a lot of the employees that we did hire and train were gone. So it came almost a completely new team again. And now we're finally there. Now we're back up to our 40 employees and, you know, it feels like a family and it's cohesive and it's working. So we're grateful that that's all behind us. And I'm sure most restaurants are. So how's the outlook now then? Built that, that patio and 
hot think, weather, good beer. Yeah, yeah, know. I think the outlook's good. I mean, we're excited. I mean, it's, you know, Sacramento's a great community, and, and there's there's more and more restaurants coming in. There's more foodies moving in, um, which is great. So I think I think the outlook is bright. I mean, the, the cost of goods is real. So yeah. that's been another big challenge for us, you know, that we're, we're working on the menu and changing items. I don't want to change what we're founded on. I mean, I really do believe in high-quality ingredients, mm-hmm. and but they're expensive, and I don't want to compromise there, even though the prices are sometimes skyrocketing and we think, well, you know, should we go to farm-raised salmon and sure. wild king salmon? Could could our margins be better? Will people will people care? And but I think we've already kind of set the set our standards there and we've attracted that group of people to come to us for that reason. So I don't want to make those changes yet. But it but it certainly is a challenge, especially some of the stuff that's coming out of the country, like a lot of mm-hmm. products that we import from Spain. You know, our Marcona almonds, for instance, are skyrocketing. And yeah. it's hard. And our, our olives that come out of Spain are, are very expensive now. And, and all the seafood tins that we used to use pretty much disappeared during, mm. the, during the, the pandemic. And they're starting to come back, but at an increased cost. And then the cost of, you know, of gas right now has affected our right. business huge because every delivery that comes to us now has surcharges on it. Yeah. So we're looking at all that, trying to find out how we can still make our margins in a in an industry that has razor thin margins. Right. But, but we look at it like we survived the pandemic, right? So we can survive this, and, and it's and it's not going to go on forever. And so we're just going to be really creative and 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 make it work. So, but the community's there. And you yeah. start to see it already. There's people out. The convention center is open again, which is fantastic. The Golden One is open. Events are happening. And the art studios around us are starting to thrive. And the theaters around us are starting to, to thrive again. So people are out and they're enjoying life, which is great. Yeah, that is really great to see. All right. Well, towards the end of the interview, I always like to ask for food-related <laughs> rapid-fire questions. Right. Um, so the first one is, what's your favorite cheap guilty pleasure? At home. At home or, you know, <laughs> yeah. fast food. What's the thing you're almost embarrassed to admit? Like, you know, you know it's, it's kind of funny. Um, peanut butter stuffed pretzels. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah, that's... <laughs> you know, it's, it's something about a peanut butter stuffed pretzel and a beer. It's, uh, I, I, I probably eat them too much. <laughs> yeah, no, they sell that giant bin that's like, you know, taller than a house cat yeah, at yeah, exactly. Costco. Yep, yep, yep. I, I could kill that whole thing. Yeah, no, my, my kids will, will yeah. run through those. Yep, yep. What's the beer you would drink? As your last beer, if you, if you knew this is the last beer I get to drink anywhere in the world, what's it going to be? You know, it, it's going to sound sound corny, but it, my Castillo, I, I, you know, I've been making that beer at home for 20 years. It's, mm. There's something about it that's very, very homey to me, and it's it's the beer I want when I don't feel well. It's the beer I want when I get back from traveling. If we've been traveling and had just phenomenal beers all over, I come home like, oh, this Castillo. I, just, <laughs> I love it. I don't know. It's, it's just that old school IPA, and it just it satisfies every part of that beer thirst that I have. All right. Yeah. What is your favorite thing to cook at home? Pescado Veracruzana. I love fish. Okay. I, I love and I love fishing. So anytime we, we go out and I, I get any kind of rock cod, it's it's the dish I want to make. Describe that dish for people so who don't know. it's it's you know it's a it's a Spanish the seafood dish. It's just we take a fillet, do a pan sear on it. So lots of capers, lots of Spanish green olives chopped. So it's kind of got that like spicy sauce on it, you know, tomatoes, red peppers. And then we make the sauce, put it over it, and then we finish baking it so the fish is almost like poached with that mm. sauce. And it's just, I don't know, it's, it's, it's a delicious <laughs> dish. And it's easy to make. Yeah. So, yeah. And what's the dish, if you could go back in time to the street with the four families, what's the dish from your childhood you would go back in time and eat? You know, this, this is a weird one. Um, 
but uh, but it's an extremely fond memory. My grandfather, my, or my grandmother, on special occasions would make a dish for my grandfather. It's a goat's head, and they would bake the whole goat's head, and it's cracked open, and you take tortillas, and eat the brain, and uh, and. I was young, and my grandfather and I were very tight, and he would invite me to the table to sit with him hmm. on these special times and eat this with him, and and he wouldn't invite everybody. You know, it was it was I felt really really special to sit down with my grandfather and have that dish, and and I'm sure that most of my family would wouldn't want to be invited to that table, <laughs> um, but I did. I, I think I don't know if it was at the at the time of my life I was young and I was just you know I and my grandfather was huge to me, yeah, and uh, so the honor to sit there was huge. And so I don't know if I'd love the dish as much as I did as a child, but I would go back in time for that. Yeah, for that moment. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I don't right. remember exactly the tool they used to to separate that and open it up, but uh, but I do remember the, the tortillas in there and, and, and loving every bite of it with yeah. my grandfather. That's great. Yeah. All right. Well, Ray Ballestero, thank you so much for being here on the Dine One Six. It was great to have yeah, you. Yeah, thank you very much, Max. My pleasure. That's going to do it for this episode of the Dine One Six. I have to say... I know how connected food is to memories, and that's one of the things that makes it so special. But it's amazing to hear how often people answer that last question with an experience of eating that is much more about the connection to a certain family member than it is about food itself. I mean, just yesterday my wife and I were leaving Costco, and she had a vanilla soft serve and strawberry topping sundae. And she was remembering her grandfather, and how much he loved that sundae and she was wishing she could go back and share one with him and just dig into the how and the why of what makes that Sunday so delicious. I'm telling you, don't sleep on that Sunday, or on a Costco cheesecake for that matter. If you like the show, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a positive review. Or shoot this episode to some friends and family and then make a plan to sample some beer and tapas on Alaro's back patio. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram. Both handles are at Dine16. And if you have thoughts or ideas about the show, shoot me an email at max at dine16.com. The opening and closing theme music are by my brother-in-law, Mark Owens. The Dine 16 is a production of the Hear Me Now studio in Citrus Heights. I'll be back with a new episode next Tuesday. And as always, and until then, eat something you love with someone you love. <laughs>